Well, this morning we have the privilege of welcoming in some new members. I'd like to invite uh, up front right now uh, Connor and Taylor Jackson, Tom and Megan Norris, Mark and Audrey Lopez, and Norm and Kim Weeks. Come on up. You are the next contestant on uh, no on the on, the, on your faith is right. I like that game show. That's a good name. Uh, but we are uh, we are very excited to welcome uh, all of these uh, families into uh, membership with us here at Ambassador Bible Fellowship. Uh, they've gone through the membership class. We've uh, we've interviewed them and talked with them, and they uh, they want to covenant together with us uh, to fulfill the Great Commission uh, to love one another and to love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ together with us here uh, in Meridian. We are so excited to to celebrate uh, their fellowship and to welcome in welcome them into uh, our body. Are we excited to see this many people coming in? And. Uh, and we still have several other families who are out of town, and uh, uh, we'll have more, uh, more and more next week. But we are excited for all that the Lord is doing uh, here, and we'd love to, uh, to pray for them now. Would you guys join us in prayer? Please pray with me. Precious Father, we are so grateful for what you've done in each of our lives in calling us to be worshipers of your Son, Jesus. Lord... And in that transformation, you've called us to be slaves of you, Lord, willfully coming under your authority and being grateful to be a member of your family and to serve and love you. And Lord, also to become a member of a local body. And Lord, we're grateful for these families who want to be a part of ambassador and serve one another. Lord, to bless one another, care for one another, to bear the burdens of each other. Uh, to admonish and to love one another. Lord, I just ask that you would bless each family that's represented here. And I ask that you would uh, especially be with Dad. Lord, as he uh, shepherds his marriage and his family, Lord, guide him, direct him, that he could be a, a priest of his home and he could disciple and care for and present clean with the word his wife and each of his children in a desiring, loving relationship. Lord, we ask for faith at an early age for each and their family. Lord, that your spirit would work mightily in drawing them to yourself. Lord, these are all things that are only possible through the power of your spirit and the extension of your grace as you show it to us. And we just want to praise you this morning for what you're already doing and will do in the years to come. Thank you. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. And since uh, the last two weeks we have been gone, last weekend we were uh, up in uh, Donnelly, Idaho, uh, doing our all-church camp, which was a great uh, joy uh, just to spend a weekend together. But uh, since that was the first Sunday of the month, we missed our our usual time to celebrate uh, communion together, to participate uh, in uh, the Lord's table. Uh, and so we're going to take this Sunday uh, to do that. Uh, and so I would invite the, the men to come forward uh, and to uh, begin to pass out uh, the elements. Uh, and uh, 
as those elements are being passed out, uh, these elements are uh, intended to be partaken by, by those uh, who have been baptized, uh, who have made a, a public declaration of their faith, uh, saying, hey, I want to follow Christ uh, and identifying with him. So these uh, elements are for those who have been baptized. So if, the, if you are here this morning, we're, we're glad that you're here. But if you haven't been uh, baptized, we would ask that you would just allow these elements to pass us by. If you have been baptized as a declaration of your faith, we would love for you to, to join with us in partaking and remembering our Lord's uh, death and resurrection uh, and looking forward to his future return. Uh, as these elements are being passed out, I would just ask you to reflect upon uh, just... The, the unity of our church body, and I'll speak a few words on it uh, in a few minutes, but just understanding who we are and how we are all united together in Christ and with one another as a result uh, as a church body. Oftentimes when we, when we think of church membership uh, and those some, who sometimes object to church membership kind of look and point to Scripture and say, well, where do you see that in the Bible? Where do you see people formally joining a church? Uh, and oftentimes when and they look through the book of Acts and look through Scripture, kind of look for the idea of joining a club club membership initiation all of that and you're like i don't see that anywhere in the book of acts and you're like yeah well that's that's true and, and you don't see that but that's not really what church membership is church membership is not about joining a club uh to receive uh, discounts on future services or uh, anything else like that uh, church membership is is really in the idea of a bound together people when we look for club initiation in church membership, we're looking for the wrong things. But what we see over and over again in the New Testament is that the church is made up of a bound together people who are following a king. Church membership is really a group of people saying we are under the lordship of Christ rather than in the lordship of Caesar or whatever other government is under us or over us. Uh, that is the, the concept and the idea of church membership in the New Testament. It's a body of believers covenanting together and saying, we're going to, to follow Christ. Uh, and what I wanted to, to do this morning is to, to read our, our membership covenant uh, and just uh, say, hey, this is what we are covenanting together. And I realize that there are some here who are not church members, but everybody should be able to agree to this. And as I read it, I'll explain why. Because really what this statement does is it condenses down what the new testament calls us to do and to be as christians uh, that every single person who is saying i'm going to follow jesus should give a hearty amen to this church covenant that i'm going to read uh, this is what our all of our members have committed ourselves to begins having as we trust been brought together by divine grace to repent and believe in the lord jesus christ and to give up ourselves to him, and having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we do now rely on his gracious aid as we solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. 
exercising in affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonishing and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to raise up our children or anyone else who comes under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and we will seek the salvation of our family and friends by proclaiming with our mouths and demonstrating with our lives the grace, love, and truth of the gospel. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, disciplines, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all the nations. We will, when we move from this area, unite as soon as possible with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. That is what we are coming together to, to celebrate. Uh, and in the, the words of that commitment, in the words of that covenant, referred to uh, a, a re-covenanting, a remembrance of uh, our commitment to Christ and our commitment to one another. And as we, as we have been commanded by Christ to celebrate the Lord's table together, that is in essence what it is. It is a remembering of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. It is a remembering of his death on the cross. It is a remembering of his resurrection. It is a remembering that we are all now united to Christ. And because we are all united to Christ, he's the, the center spoke of our wheel. That means we are all united to one another. And we are to care for each other and love one another as if we are our own body. That is what we are called to remember this day whenever we come and celebrate the table together. It was on the last night with his disciples that Jesus instituted was known as the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And may we now partake of this bread together in remembrance of Christ's body that was broken for us. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And oh, how we long for that day. Let us remember it together. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that in your wisdom, in your grace, 
in your mercy, you have chosen to save us, that you have chosen to redeem for yourself a people, and that you have chosen to save us and redeem us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we remember and acknowledge his sacrifice, not only today, but each and every day of our lives, acknowledging that he has died for us, that he rose from the grave on the third day and is now seated at your right hand. And Lord, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, and because of our union with him, Lord, we have died to sin and you have brought us up to newness of life as well. And we ask and pray that you would be with our church body, that you would continue to build us, to knit our hearts together, that you would build your church of which you are the head. Lord, I thank you so much for all that you are doing within our church body. We pray for continued growth. We pray for continued witness to the lost and that we would be a faithful and accurate representation of who you are in your glory, your grace, and your patience. Lord, we thank you for this time together, and we ask for your blessing upon our gathering. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you have your cups, if you can pass them to the two center aisles, and we'll uh, come and we'll collect uh, the cups from you. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm 11, where we'll be uh, continuing our... Our study, uh, we are going through uh, summer in the psalm, so to speak. And uh, we are very thankful that you are here to join us this morning. I know it is getting warmer and warmer. Uh, Let's try and open up. uh, Can can we open doors, windows, get fans blowing? Uh, I know moving air is better than than stationary uh, air, and uh, so if if people are moving about to try and keep us cool, extend them grace uh, and give them thanks. Uh, this is our, our first summer uh, in here. Uh, it feels like we've had a, a light summer so far, and it's suddenly uh, upon us now. But uh, as you're there with me uh, in Psalm 11. <clears throat> That's what we'll be looking at uh, this morning. Uh, There was a man named Walter Bradford Cannon uh, who was the first scientist to propose uh, the theory of acute stress response in animals. This theory is also commonly known as the the fight-or-flight response. And the premise underlying this research is that when when animals face a a life-threatening situation, uh, when they feel in danger, uh, they tend to, to move to one of two extremes. They either uh, flee from the danger and run, uh, or they stand their, gr- their ground and fight. Uh, and especially if an, if an animal is unable to flee, they will usually resort to the, to the fighting. And that's why you don't mess with an animal uh, that is cornered. Right? Uh, you, you teach your kids that. If there's an animal that feels that they are in danger and they have no way of escape, they're going to lash out uh, in ways that are unexpected. And, uh, and even though humans are not evolved animals, uh, we can respond in similar ways at times. We still have that uh, similar response and those decision-making principles that kind of kick in when we feel that we're in, da- in danger. Uh, the adrenaline starts uh, and we either we either fight or we... We run. Uh, and uh, my mother-in-law has warned me on multiple occasions not to scare her because, uh, as she says, she is a fighter. Uh, meaning that if I, if I scare her, even on accident, she will hit me. She's not going to run. She will attack. Uh, and I believe her. 
Uh, so, so I don't, uh, I don't mess with her in any way. Uh, but uh, we also face certain occasions in our lives now, when we feel cornered spiritually, uh, when, when we feel stuck, when we feel like uh, the world around us is either crumbling down or coming after us. And in all of these crisis situations, we have to make a spiritual decision. Now, this is where it's unique for us as Christians, because as Christians, we're not called to fight. The options aren't fight or flight for us. It's not that way. When the world fights against us, we are called to respond in a different manner. We're called to turn the other cheek. We're called to submit to governing authorities. We're called to to emulate and follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And where do those footsteps lead? Jesus was unjustly arrested, unjustly tried and condemned, unjustly executed. He experienced great injustice. But in all of those... He didn't flee. He didn't fight. He did something else. That's why I say, for us as Christians, the decision that we are faced with in a crisis is not fight or flight. It is flight or faith. That's what we are called to. In a crisis, we'll be tempted to run from our circumstances, to run from those who are coming after us, to run from difficult responsibilities. To run from those who seek to do us harm. And that's the situation that we, that we come to in Psalm 11. We see David. We don't know the exact situation, but he is he's facing a group of people who are against him. A group of people who want to take his life. And there are multiple settings in David's life that could fit this situation. It could be uh, when King Saul was coming after him. See, David was anointed king even when King Saul was already ruling and reigning. So Saul knew that David was going to be the next king, and he wasn't too fond of that idea. So for many years, David was on the run. This could be an occasion in David's life when he was running from Saul. It could also be an occasion when after David had become king, his son Absalom tried to take the throne from him might have been that when he was running from Absalom, it might have been an occasion when he had to go and hide out with the Philistines. And then they tried to turn against him. Or it might have been some other situation that's not recorded for us in Scripture. But I think the fact that no setting is given in this psalm kind of gives it a, a greater breadth. Because we don't know the exact situation. There's a whole bunch of things that could fit into this. Any and every situation where David was tempted to flee for his life would apply. Let us read through these verses together. There's just seven of them. Beginning with the, the title, it says, To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked... The wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked wicked. 
and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. What we see in this psalm is is King David having to make a very difficult decision. In the middle of a crisis, is he going to, to trust in the Lord or is he going to turn and run? Would he try and flee to safety or would he stand in faith? We face similar decisions each and every day in our own time. Every time we face a crisis, we decide whether we will trust in God or trust in someone or something else instead. We have a decision to make. Where is our trust going to be placed? But in the middle of that decision, in such a situation when, when governments are against us or somebody is filing lawsuits against us or something else is taking place when we are facing persecution... We don't have that too much in our culture right now, but it is moving in that direction. What are we to do in that type of situation? And how do we make a decision on whether we should run or whether we should stay? Psalm 11 is going to give us three factors that influence our faith in that decision-making process. Three factors that that will come into play when we're saying, should I run for my life or should I trust in the Lord in this instance? And the outline that I have there for you is kind of loosely based upon an outline from uh, Dale Ralph Davis, a great Old Testament preacher. But the the three factors that we're going to see in this psalm in verses 1 through 3, we see the, the bad advice that faith hears. Verses 4 through 6, we hear the good answer that faith gives. And then in verse 7, we see the calm assurance that faith holds. Well, let's look first at that, at that first factor, that the bad advice that faith hears. Let's look again at verses 1 through 3. It says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. <clears throat> If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So David is, is writing this, and he begins this, this song. It was initially written as something that was to be accompanied by music, something to be sung and remembered and to be recalled in corporate worship by the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and David begins with a statement of his own faith. He says, this is where my safety lies. And he says, it's where? He says, in the Lord. In the Lord... I take refuge. He is the one that I am going to run to. David knows that his life is in the hands of God. But even though he knows that, he is facing temptation to think otherwise. And this temptation is coming from an unlikely place. If you look at the second line in verse 1, it says, How can you say to my soul? So David is... He's made this assertion of his own faith, and now he's speaking to others or about others. He says, how can you say something to me? And the word you there is plural. He says, hey, how can y'all say this to me? There's a group of people who are giving David counsel, and he's saying, how can you have the nerve to say that to me? Then there's a little bit of a question. 
we know where the, the quotation begins of what he's, David's quoting what somebody else is speaking to him. He says, how can you say this to my soul? We know the quotation begins in that third line in verse 1, but then there's this kind of disagreement on where the quotation ends. Could it end anywhere from, it could just be that first line, flee like a bird to your mountain, or it could continue on to the end of verse 3. Kind of where you decide to break up the quotation will, will change how you interpret and understand this psalm. But I, I personally think that the quotation goes all the way down to the end of verse 3. That David is questioning, how can you say this to me? And David is speaking to his own friends. David is speaking to men who are close to him, probably his mighty men, the men who were uh, in him through, with him through all of the, the deepest and darkest moments of his life, the men who were his, his companions and his bodyguards. And I think it's that way because as he speaks of the wicked, or they speak of the wicked in verse 2, they're not saying us, they're, they're speaking of the wicked in a third person as other people. And it's interesting to, to begin to, to pull this apart. That David is saying, quoting his friends, his mighty men, as counseling him to do what? To flee. His mighty men are saying, flee like a bird to your mountain. And then they explain why he should do that. He says, hey, the wicked are coming after us. Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string. The idea is, hey, the danger is not somewhere far off. The danger is right here, right now. Last week at the, the all-church camp, I did a little bit of archery. Got a bruise on my forearm from it. Uh, but you, you, the way that you notch your arrow, you don't notch your arrow until you're ready to shoot. So when David's companions are saying, hey, the, the arrow is on the string now. Danger is upon us. We have to act soon, quickly. That's what they are urging him to consider. And these wicked who are against them, you notice at the end of verse 2, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And these, these wicked are out there. They're trying to, to kill David. And we don't know who they are. They're, they're ready to, to ambush. It kind of puts you on edge constantly. They are concealed and dangerous. And then David's friends ask a very important question in verse 3. It says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's a very difficult question to understand and, and to process. And it's difficult because of that word, foundations. This is the, the only place where that Hebrew word occurs in the entire Old Testament. So it's difficult for us to, to compare to other locations and say, what does it mean here? What does it mean in this other instance? The idea of the foundations are destroyed is the idea of the social order, the established institutions of society. And David's friends bring up a good question. When those are crumbling, what can the righteous do? What can, where do we run when society is crumbling? And this would make a great deal of sense if, if David is running from Absalom here and he's already king. And his men are reasoning with him and saying, Hey, look, if you as the king die, what's going to happen to our nation? What's going to take place if the king is assassinated? This is going to be a great problem. And it is this question that, that's really the central question of the psalm. 
the idea that what, what do the righteous do when everything seems to be crumbling around us? When society is in decay, when society is turning against us, what do we do? How do we respond? But at this point, we must acknowledge that they present a good argument, don't they? David's men. Hey, David, you've got to think about this. What happens if you die? If you die, the foundations of our monarchy crumble, and then where does that leave us? They present a rational and logical argument, but there's still a problem with it. And how do I know there's a problem with it? Because how does David respond to it? What does he say in verse 1? How can you say to me? And how, how dare you say that to me? So what's the issue with their counsel? What is the problem with this counsel to flee like a bird to the mountain? I would say this, that this counsel that is being offered, it's built upon a foundation of fear and unbelief rather than upon faith and the truth of Scripture. David's men are not calling him to trust in the Lord. They're calling him to trust in himself. Say, David, you've got to take matters into your own hands. You better run. If you want to live, you, you fly like a bird out of here. That is the, the premise of their counsel, and that is where their counsel errs. A while back, there was a, an advertisement in a, in a Christian magazine, news magazine. Uh, and this advertisement was for a, a Christian college prep school, so a high school. And the ad showed a young man at a, at a university uh, sitting at a library, a table in the library. Uh, and, and right there next to him is a, uh, an, a, kind of an attentive and attractive young lady. Uh, and the caption to the ad says, uh, Where is your son getting his answers? Maybe from a sweet girl like Julie. She is smart, pretty, and believes she is a reincarnated Babylonian princess. And, and, and the, the ad kind of is playing on the subtlety of the situation. Now, sometimes danger doesn't come from those places that we expect it to. You send your kids off to college, sometimes you kind of prep them for, uh, you know, an overzealous administrator or a, a college professor who may try to destroy their faith. But sometimes the greatest danger is in others who are going to come alongside them, who look and, and appear harmless but who are going to counsel something that is going to send students off into a completely different trajectory. And that's the point here in this psalm, in these verses, that sometimes the counsel of well-meaning friends can sound caring, concerning, and sincere, and yet it can still be contrary to Scripture. Here's something to keep in mind. Good intentions are never the measuring stick. They're never the barometer for good counsel. Somebody meaning well can still send you off in the wrong direction. Okay? Now, if somebody comes up to you and asks for directions, uh, and you give them the wrong directions unintentionally, well-meaning, is that still going to put them in a bad situation? Absolutely. Good intentions are never, never the measuring stick for counsel. H.L. Ellison says that, the love of your friends will often create your most subtle temptations. And that is so true. That our friends can sometimes lead us astray sincerely 
but unintentionally. And this acknowledging that this can be a problem puts us in a very difficult situation. Because on the one hand, you're like, okay, so Thomas, are you telling me not to listen to any of my friends? Do I just never listen to any counsel ever? Do I scoff whenever my friends say something to me? Well, no, that's not what I'm, not what I'm trying to say. What I'm, what I'm calling us to is to see and understand that a great deal of discernment is required whenever we are receiving counsel from somebody else. When we are in a crisis, we have to be willing and able to discern what is, what is the response that's wise and prudent and what's a response that's going to be unbelieving and fearful. Where is the line between those two? And then also this, this psalm begs the question of, is it always sinful to flee from danger? And I, and I would say no. Our Lord at times even said that you will need to flee. Matthew chapter 10 verse 23 says, when, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. And as he's sending out his disciples, he gives them instructions of, hey, when they begin to persecute you, it's time to go. He's not saying you have to stand and die. He says, okay, you just take that as it's time to go. And in the early church in Acts chapter 8, we see that the Lord used persecution to scatter the church. Stephen was just killed, he was just martyred, and then a great persecution rose up and the church scattered. So they went throughout the, the land of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So there are some situations when we are called to, to flee and run for our lives, and there's other situations where we need to stand, we need to stay. I can't give you a cookie-cutter answer on how all of that works, because we, it's required that we exercise wisdom and discernment. That we look to God's word when we, we look to God in prayer. That's why Paul prayed for the Philippians to have discernment. Paul says this in Philippians 1. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That needs to be our prayer. Lord, what is it you're calling us to, to believe? How am I supposed to make this decision right now? And this should also be a warning for all of us to hold every counsel we receive up to the inspired and inerrant word of God. Now it says no, no friend's counsel should be received blindly. Every word, every counsel that is given to us, we're supposed to go take that to Scripture to hold it up and say, Christ, should I build my life upon this? Does this match what you have told me to do? Because again, David's friends, their counsel was so good. It was so logical, so rational. But it was off just a little bit. Built on the wrong foundation. So we must be careful. Additionally, this should challenge us as well. Should show us that maybe we need to be more careful in how we speak, in the counsel that we offer. Okay? Because sometimes we, we offer counsel that's built upon fear rather than upon faith. It's built upon our wisdom rather than upon the wisdom of God's Word. So we have to, to ask, is God's Word the final authority for what I'm going to say and what I'm going to receive? And what type of counsel am I going to offer to others? And, and I would urge you for a moment to, 
to really consider attending the conference that we're putting on in the fall with Meridian First Baptist of how to counsel and disciple from Scripture because that, that conference will give you a theological grid for how you should receive others. It gives you a grid to, to run other people's counsel through and it gives you a, a framework for concern what you should counsel others. Because again, counsel, counseling can be very dangerous. You can lead people astray or you can be led astray. And David had a theological grid and he immediately understood that while his friend's counsel made sense, it wasn't what he needed to receive at that time. It wasn't what he needed to act upon. And what we're going to see in the next three verses is we see his response to their fearful counsel. We see the bad advice that faith hears, and then we see the second factor in verses 4 through 6, the good answer that faith gives. Look with me at those verses. David says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. So David responds to his friends by not looking at the wicked, but by looking to the Lord. David begins by pointing to Yahweh's present location in heaven. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. He is sitting on his throne in heaven. David doesn't look at what's taking place on the earth he looks to the Lord. He says, the Lord sees, the Lord knows all that is taking place. The Lord even sees the wicked who are ready to ambush. He even sees the arrows shot in the dark at the righteous. He sees and is aware of all of those things. And from his throne, the Lord is able to test the children of man. And that Hebrew word for test, we see it at the end of verse 4 and then again at the beginning of verse 5, it carries the idea of taking precious metals, gold and silver, putting them into the fire, melting them down and purifying them. Now, that, that's the method of testing, by sticking it into the fire. And as such, it kind of functions as a double metaphor here. Because the idea for the righteous, the Lord tests them and they are purified. That that fire has a purifying effect upon those who are righteous. And, and when this psalm speaks of the righteous, it's not speaking of people who are self-righteous. It's not speaking of people who say, oh, I've done all of these great things. I've earned my way to heaven. That's not the righteous. That's actually the wicked in Scripture. When the psalms speak of the righteous, it's speaking of the one who exercises faith, the one who looks to God for their salvation. The one who acknowledges, I cannot save myself. God, you must save me. That is the righteous in the Old Testament. That is, those are the ones who are saved, who are Christians in the New Testament. We never have a righteousness based upon our own efforts or our own merits. It is God who saves us through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. That is who the righteous are. They look to God in faith. And the Lord tests the righteous. And that testing purifies them. But on the other side of the coin, the fire has a different effect upon those who are the wicked. 
upon those who are in rebellion against God, those who are seeking to attack others and persecute them and oppress them. The Lord has a a different, or the fire, the testing of the Lord has a different effect upon them. It purifies the righteous, but it brings judgment upon the wicked. And it's interesting, in in verse 5, as the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. There's kind of a popular cliche right now that God loves uh, the sinner but hates the sin. But that kind of runs contrary to what we see here, doesn't it? And it's not saying that God loves the sinner but just hates their sin. God's saying, hey, there is a hatred, there is an animosity that God feels towards those who are at odds against him and against others. There is a, a hatred here, and that, that word hatred has a, a broad spectrum of meaning. But David is pointing that out, that God is hostile to those who are wicked, those who love violence. And the picture that he paints here in verse 6, says, let him rain coals on the wicked. Quite the... Quite the picture that he paints. And then it continues. He says, Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind will be the portion of their cup. And that fire and sulfur, it's kind of translated in the old King James, two terms that you probably heard before, fire and brimstone. Now that, that's David's prayer. He says, Lord, the wicked, may you bring them to judgment. May you rain coals of fire and brimstone down upon them. Because of what they are doing, because of their hostility, their anger, their animosity. And, and when Scripture points us to fire and brimstone, we're, we're called to think back to remember an earlier instance in Scripture, an earlier story about two cities that were judged with fire and brimstone back in the book of Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah. And fire and brimstone in those cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, are just a perpetual reminder of the sudden and final judgment of God that's going to come upon the wicked. And, and some of you may kind of be having some internal struggles right now, kind of grumbling in your hearts. So, man, isn't that, a, isn't that a very strong prayer by David? Now, how is it right to, to pray for judgment? Isn't, it, isn't that angry and harsh to, to pray for the Lord to judge the wicked? And I would say no. Now, I'll say this. You can think of it this way. My house is currently having some, some water drainage issues. Uh, the way that the, the landscaping was done, uh, we have a, a portion of our yard that, that angles toward our house. And then right at that corner of the house, we also have one of our rain gutters uh, that goes right down that same location. Uh, and uh, when it rains, the, the, the rain, the water doesn't run off properly. It just collects right there. Uh, and I, I haven't dealt with the problem as I should. So now, because I haven't dealt with it completely, every time it rains, guess what I have to do? I have to go outside and I have to check and make sure that the water isn't collecting. So sometimes I have to go out with a broom. There was a, a strange storm uh, a few weeks back 
It was like a localized thunderstorm just over my house. Uh, I think we got like three inches of rain just really, really quickly. And it was just this torrential downpour. And then afterwards, I went somewhere else and like the streets were dry. I'm like, what is this? Uh, but I was out there. I had to be I had to sweep the water away. And then we have to brainstorm of how to kind of bring the water, kind of lengthen out the, uh, the rain gutter so that the water drains further from the house. But 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 here's the, the point. Until I fix that completely, I'm never going to be free from it. It's going to be with me repeatedly until it is dealt with finally. And that is the, the Lord's attitude. That is the, the Scripture's attitude towards the judgment of the wicked. That until the wicked are dealt with completely and finally in the future judgment, we're going to have to continue to go through this. And the wicked are going to continue to attack and persecute God's people. And we're not going to be free from it until there is a final judgment. And that is what David is praying for here. And ultimately what we have to think through and understand that there there is no salvation unless there is also judgment. And when you pray for deliverance from somebody oppressing you, you're asking God to deal with that person. And to deal with it in a way that brings resolution. And that is what David is asking for here. But as we look at this section, as we look at these verses, we see how David battled against this temptation that was presented to him from the words of his friends. His friends are saying, hey, you need to flee. Here's the counsel that we're giving you. While his friends were looking at those who were seeking to take his life, David was looking to the sovereign God said, my hand, my life is in his hands. And that brought David hope and trust. And because David knew that God hates the wicked and those who love violence, he found comfort and peace. David realized, hey, God is on my side in this. And as Charles Spurgeon says, if God hates them, I will not fear them. And what we see here is everything that really, everything depends on where you set your eyes. If you, if you set your eyes upon your own circumstances, if you set your eyes upon those who are against you, what's going to happen? If you're just a rational human being and you're focused upon those who are against you, what are you going to fear or feel? I gave away my answer. Fear. Uh, that, that is what you are going to, to feel on the inside. You're going to see all of these people against you and say, what can I do? But if instead of looking at those who are against you, you look to the Lord, what are you going to feel? You're going to feel hope, comfort. You're going to place your faith and trust in the God who controls all things. And that is where peace and comfort come. And that is David's response. Hey, how can, how can you say, I need to run? God's in control. God's still on his throne. He knows exactly what I'm going through, what I'm experiencing. That's what brings me hope and comfort in this situation. And that is what ultimately guided David's decision-making in that moment of crisis. And you can think of it this way. As as David, what we see in verses 4 through 6, he's exercising the spiritual discipline of remembering. Okay, The spiritual discipline of remembering. And it is a spiritual discipline. We have to work to remember who God is 
and what he has done. We can remember all of God's past deliverances. He's got a long, long track record. He's got an unwavering character. That is what we need to remind ourselves of in the middle of a crisis. Those are the utmost truths that we will need to anchor our souls and keep us from being tossed by the wind and the waves. And in the Psalms, over and over again, we see this spiritual discipline of remembering. Tony Ranke says that the Psalms have more to teach than any other book in the Bible about the spiritual discipline of remembering and the spiritual dangers of forgetting. He continues, he says, To remember God is to satisfy the soul and to recalibrate our always shifting perception of reality. But to forget God is to forsake God. If you, if you can imagine with me what this psalm would be like if David forgot who God was in the, this moment of crisis. The psalm would be really short, right? My friend said, flee, so I, <laughs> I fled, right? That, that was kind of the extent of the psalm. He would receive their counsel because he wouldn't remember who God is and what God is capable of. It's also scary to think about it this way. What if David had never learned those things? What if he had never been taught about the character of God? What if he did not know the past track record of faithfulness that God has? He would have a a similar response. Do we have to know, we have to remember who God is and what he is capable of? We are going to exercise faith in the middle of a crisis. That's why it's so important for us to read and remember Scripture. To read and remember theology. To recall who God is and what He has done on so many occasions for so many people. And our confidence comes from remembering the sovereign God who sits above our crisis. That's where confidence comes. Not looking at the earthly perspective, but hey, there's still a God who sits and rules and reigns in heaven. So our eyes and our hearts and our minds must turn to Him. And the bad advice that faith hears and the good answer that faith gives, those are the first two factors in our decision-making process in times of crisis. And there's one last factor. We see this at the, the last verse in this psalm. Look with me at verse, verse 7. It says, For the Lord is righteous, and He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. David directs his praise now to the Lord stating that He is righteous and that He loves righteous deeds. This contrasts with the previous statement about what God hates. We see that man, God is full of emotions in this psalm. He loves, He hates. God loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And because God loves righteousness, David can put his hope in this final line of this psalm. Look at me, what he ends the psalm with. He says that the upright shall behold His face. David finds an assurance of his hope in remembering that even if the wicked succeed, even if these men who are conspiring against him, even if they they shoot an arrow in the dark and kill David, what is David still sure of? That he will behold the face of God in heaven. And that is his final assurance. That is the, the faith and the hope that he clings to. 
This also points to one of the errors behind David's uh, friend's counsel. See, David's friends, they were counseling David as if the greatest priority in life is our personal safety. Right? David, if if you do that, that would be so foolish because you might die. And David is in essence saying, no, that, that cannot be the highest priority in life. Safety can never be our highest concern. And I would say this, that show me someone who has made an idol out of safety, and I'll so, show you somebody who is controlled by fear. Right? That, that, that is the net result of making an idol out of safety. But here is what is key, is where is David's heart? What is his desire in all of this? And true Christians don't just want God's protection, we want God's fellowship. We don't just want to be saved by God in a crisis, we want to be near to Him at all times. Dale Ralph Davis says, There are many who are interested in safety, but only saints care about fellowship. And that is what we need to remember and remind ourselves of. There is a God who is greater A God who we long to be near and with, not just a God who's able to get us out of difficult spots. That's not why we worship God. We worship Him because of His greatness, His glory, His grace, His mercy, His compassion, not just because He can save us. And if the first line in the psalm shows us where our safety lies, in the Lord I take refuge. The last line in the psalm shows us where our hearts should be, Focused upon the Lord, longing to be with Him and to behold Him. That's what we see in this psalm. And this psalm teaches us many different things in just a few verses. Shows us that we need discernment. Shows us that we need to direct our vision, not to our circumstances or those who are against us, but to the one who is for us in heaven, seated on His throne. Shows us that we need to have hope and faith as we exercise decision-making. And while our friends may offer advice that sounds practical and sincere, we must take every bit of counsel that we hear captive to the obedience of Christ to determine whether we should receive it or reject it. I was reading last night with my son, and he has this book entitled Jonathan James and the What If Monster. And in the book, we're introduced to this little boy who's placed in various situations. And in each situation, there's this little green furry what-if monster there in the picture with him. And in whatever situation that he's in, the what-if monster is there in his ear asking him what-if questions. And those questions end up creating fear in the heart of young Jonathan James. In the picture of Jonathan James climbing a tree, the monster asks, What if you tumble? What if there's wind? What if you slip and your knee gets all skinned? As he's on the dive board of the swimming pool with other kids watching him, the monster asks, What if they giggle? What if it's chilly? What if you jump and look really silly? As he's playing baseball, the monster asks, What if it's hard? What if you're bad? What if they laugh and make you feel sad? Now, as adults, we kind of look at that and we chuckle. The what if monster. But sometimes, 
we have friends who are what-if monsters. Sometimes we have a what-if monster in our own hearts. But we run through all of those what-if questions. We say, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? And guess what begins to, to fill up our hearts? Fear. Not faith. We begin to run through all of these scenarios of what could happen. What we are called to do in those situations is not give in to the what-ifs, but to remember. To exercise that spiritual discipline of remembering who God is and what He has done on our behalf. Then all of the what-ifs disappear. Then our response is just, yeah, that is a, a what-if, what-if monster. But I know the God who is in control. And even if the worst of the worst happens... I will still behold his face in heaven. Amen. May that be our goal this week and always when we face crises of exercising that spiritual discipline of remembering. Let's pray. Almighty God, Lord, you sit in the heavens. You sit on your throne. There is nothing that takes place that you are not aware of. Lord, you know all of our trials. You know all of our difficulties. You know every temptation that we face. And Lord, that gives us comfort. That gives us hope. And Lord, may we understand that oftentimes those temptations... Those situations when we are faced with danger, when we are faced with a crisis, that, Lord, you are using those as a way of testing us, as a way of purifying us, as a way of making us more and more like your Son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would keep those truths in mind as we face a crisis, as we face a society, as we face a culture that is bearing down upon us more and more. Lord, there may come a time when, like David, our lives are in danger. When the wicked are pursuing us and seeking to kill us. But Lord, in that time, and in every time before then, in every crisis and every decision that we make, Lord, I pray that we would make Decisions that are based upon the truth of your word and the exercise of faith. Lord, may we not be controlled by fear. May safety never become an idol in our hearts. But may we be willing to follow Christ. May we keep our eyes upon him because it is him. What he has accomplished in our lives. Our life is now hidden in him and he is seated at your right hand and lord may that be where our eyes are directed rather than our present circumstances and may you lead us and guide us as you see fit increase our faith lord we ask in the precious marvelous magnificent name of jesus christ our lord and our savior amen